Chapter 27 Stella shook down the empty staff room by strolling in through the doors as if she owned the place, weaving among the tables and chairs to the rack of staff outdoor garments. She slid her hands into each coat pocket like the worst sort of border guard. Coats always looked bigger off than on. Stella reflected and tended to smell a little stronger than their owners, especially the big duffel coat nearest the washroom. That one had to be Ollie's. You could fit both Cheryl and Ruliza inside it and still have room to swing a very small cat. Brazenly, she went through Ollie's pockets. All she found was a pack of cigarettes and a disposable lighter. She replaced them in Ollie's pocket and looked around her. With the sudden memory of Cheryl tossing something into the staff room bin, Stella reached into it and pulled out two envelopes and two pieces of paper. A few brown drips had spilled out of the neighboring paper coffee cups onto the papers, and she wiped them delicately against the side of the bin. She gazed at the letters with satisfaction, taking in the cut-out letters with their magazine paper sheen. Searching for poison pen letters was something like hunting for Easter eggs. Remembering decades ago the eager pride in her daughter Junie's eyes as she placed blue and yellow eggs into her green grass basket. Stella took time for a quick glance to double-check that the papers were indeed what they seemed to be. The cut-out letters and cut-out magazine pictures showed that they had been sent by the same hand that had sent Stella's. She couldn't make out what pictures had been glued to these missives. She very much wanted to know whether the two care workers, Cheryl and Reliza, had also received pictures of knives or indeed of weapons of any kind. However, her eyes were playing up again and she dared not wait for them to settle down, for she meant to take her time examining the letters, and it seemed to her that when you were standing in a staff room where you did not belong, holding letters not meant for yourself, it was preferable not to be caught at it. Stella tucked the letters into her pocket and headed for the staff room door. It really was almost exactly like hunting Easter eggs. In Junie's time, the grass that lined her Easter basket had been made of some brilliant green mad-made material, and the eggs were soft, creamy, sugar inside, chewy and somehow malty at the same time, cast in pale colors, Easter colors, turquoise, yellow, and pink. The egg's candy surface wept in wet weather and had to be tossed out within a day or two if not eaten. The green strands of grass, however, stayed with you. You found it wound around the vacuum brush in July or trailing from your heel in November. One of the great thrills in life was watching your child coming towards you with the first Easter egg of the day. Stella had divested herself of 
all her worldly goods, but if she had them back, she'd trade them all away again just to see that look in Junie's eyes one more time. Out in the corridor, Stella turned left towards Corridor Park and the rest of the tangle of corridors that so often defeated her and sent her begging for care workers to lead her back to her room. There would be none of that nonsense now. She told herself that, did not, that it did not matter whether she lost herself or not. The important thing was to find Ollie and the letter he must be keeping on his trolley. Then, on to the rest of the Fairmount Manor staff. Chapter 28 Stella moved along the corridor, peering into open doors at smooth white beds, white curtains billowing at the windows. How exactly had she found her way upstairs in palliative care? She had given up looking for Ollie. Instead, she had been searching for Dr. Terry's office, hoping to find an anonymous letter addressed to him. She had told herself that it didn't matter if she got herself lost, but the humiliation of not remembering coming upstairs in the first place stopped her in her tracks. And now she couldn't find her way downstairs again. Soldier on, Stella. Think like a detective. Look for a clue. She hadn't been up here since the day she had demolished expectations of her demise by rising from her deathbed and running away downstairs. There was a humming sound in the air. The sound of the machines that took you by the hand and sang gentle, wordless, two-note tunes to you through your last days in the world. As well, she remembered this odor of pine sole and tomato soup from the little kitchen and dining room dedicated to the few upstairs residents who could still totter in to meals. To Stella's right, she recognized the small room at the end of the corridor. This special little room had been hers for an afternoon only a couple of short weeks ago when everybody except mad Cassandra Browning thought Stella was dying. Nobody was in the special room today, for the door stood open and the blinds in the windows were shut tight to sleeping eyes. She turned her back on the little dying room and found that she was facing the door to the stairs. It seemed to appear out of nowhere as if she had conjured it out of the air. It would be locked, of course. Residents were not allowed to use the stairs, but only the elevator, which required a key card. But more magic. When she pushed against it, the door opened slightly. She blinked at it, and then, using her shoulders and upper back against the weight of it, she passed through the door and found herself at the top of the staircase. Mrs. Warren's warnings resonated inside her. Residents must not use stairs or bathtubs. 
Stella frowned. Stairs and bathtubs. Oh my. As with lions and tigers, you must never approach them on your own. A rebellious spark leapt inside Stella's heart. With bathtubs and stairways lurking behind every second door throughout your entire life, it's a wonder I've lived so long. She looked down. There, at the bottom of the stairs, stood a single door. It was shut tight. Up at the top of the stairs, Stella felt as wobbly as a stuffed bear propped up on a shelf. She put her hand on the door behind her, a movement that twisted her leg awkwardly. Her slip-on shoe slipped halfway off her heel. So irritating was the memory of Mrs. Warren's cautionary lecture that she hardly noticed the problem. With one hand against the door at her back to steady herself, she extended her foot to take the first step downstairs. Her slip-on slid off her big toe. With a light, sloppy sound, it juddered down the steps to lie at the bottom like a very small, distant, dead person. You see, Mrs. Ryman, this is why patients are not allowed on the stairs. Stella frowned. She disliked the director of Fairmont Manor, and she objected to having the woman making snug pronouncements inside Stella's head. <laughs> Inwardly, she replied, Teach your grandmother to descend a simple set of stairs, why don't you? So she sidled to the left-hand wall and took hold of the railing. She closed her eyes and fumbled for a sensation of balance. How sick and tired she was of dizziness. Like its big uncle, nausea, you never did learn to ignore it. When she was a little girl, Stella always loved to walk down staircases. She would stand at the top and prepare, touching three fingers lightly to the banister. This touch was for form rather than stability. She thought the outstretched arm communicated a ballerina's grace. Once poised in this manner, she would descend without ever once looking down at her feet. She would imagine herself Princess Elizabeth, all eyes upon her as she flowed downwards from step to step, as if shod in winged slippers. She probed with her sock foot for the first step, and then the second. When she opened her eyes again, she was on the final step. Alive, at the bottom of the stairs. Stick that in your pipe, Mrs. Warren, director of Fairmount Manor. It felt good to be in contravention of all the stairway rules, and if somebody had presented her now with a brimming bathtub, she rather thought she'd clamber into it, unaided, and with all her clothes on, just to show the world it could be done. What stopped her on that last step? was a very silly thing. It came from having two things to deal with, and not just one. First, her slip-on shoe was lying up against the door at the bottom of the stairs. Its heel was turned round so that she'd need a rather complicated set of 
geometrical movements to get it back onto her foot. Residents must wear shoes at all times. And second, what if the door at the bottom of the steps was locked? She was not a cowardly woman. She had once told an administra administrator to his face that he must not call the married teachers Mrs. and the single teachers Ms. But the thought of having to go back up those stairs was enough to make her sit down and cry. And if she did, what if she got stuck? Further, what if they never found her? Buck up, Stella, she told herself grimly. Exactly how small has your world become? But before she could even try the door at the bottom of the stairs, it opened. There in the opening stood somebody she knew. In her confusion, however, she couldn't recall his name. He was the tall one, she remembered. The one among the sprinkling of male residents who had managed to hang on to his hair. She gazed up at him, grateful that he had opened the door, and embarrassed that she couldn't remember his name. Theo! Theo nodded. One hand on the door, he bent down, moving so slowly that she felt just a little less awful about her own recent difficulties with the stairs. Bemused, she watched him push her slip-on shoe a couple of inches closer to where she was standing. As he looked up at her, she understood that she had a role in this too. She took the last step, touched her hand to the wall beside the door for balance, and extended her foot towards him. He guided her shoe onto her sock foot and pulled the canvas straight across her instep. Tenderly, he set her foot in its slip-on back down upon the step. Theo's focus and his systematic, gentle movements appealed to Stella, but she reminded herself that she was not like the nodder, intent on Theo's attentions sitting up straight just before noon every day, expecting him to stop in front of the Greek chorus and offer the nodder his arm to walk down to the dining room. Stella had no interest in sunset romances, and if she needed proof of her own objectivity, all she had to do was remember the day Theo had offered to escort Stella to lunch instead. She had turned him down like a crisp top sheet. She said, Thank you. Theo nodded. She was impressed to see that he had a pretty good method for standing up straight, too. Uh, it appeared to be a matter of using two hands on his thighs for support instead of employing the door handle or stair rail for support. That looks like something she might try. He offered her his arm, and she took it. Theo escorted her through the doorway, and the lock clicked behind them. Before she could thank him, he let go her arm and strode away. She had no idea where in Fairmont Manor's web-like map he had left her. Like a kid 
on a strange street crossing, she stood and looked both ways. On her right yawned an empty corridor, unhelpfully painted beige, which disappeared at a turning point several yards off. On her left, not far off, a pair of double doors stood open, and as for the rest of the world, it lay flat underneath the soft shoals of her slip-ons. No, the world was not underfoot, quite the opposite. Stella imagined the great blue and green home planet contained in an unthinkably large glass bubble, sparkling with mica flakes that rose and fell, swirling as a curious hand shook the snow globe. Chapter 29 It's your life, you know, if you're known. The king would never forget it, I stammered. Are we women? Who cares for his forgiveness? The Prisoner of Zenda As with all Zenda-like adventures, entering a doctor's office without an appointment or even a plausible excuse was an enterprise best approached with caution. However, Stella was determined to search for more letters in every possible spot, and Dr. Terry's office was such a small space, no bigger than many of Fairmont's storage cupboards, that a search would take only moments, unless Stella had to go through the boxes of files in one of the leaf-green shelves near the door. There were a couple more boxes under the examining couch that took up at least a third of the available space. However, who would irrationally file a poison pen letter in among his patient files? Not Dr. Terry. He was young, but whenever Stella caught sight of him on his visits to Fairmont Manor, he had the intense, distracted look common among men who knew their jobs. She decided to begin with his desk. However, before she had had time to do more than ruffle through a few irrelevant papers, her luck collapsed. There in the doorway stood Dr. Terry himself, handsome and frayed about the collar. One hand held a paper coffee cup and the other a paperback book. He was, in fact, the picture of a doctor prepared to take a well-earned break from his elderly patients. Stella rallied from disappointment as well as circumstances allowed. Hello, she said, removing her hands from his papers. Here I am. Yes, indeed. Dr. Terry set his coffee down among the papers on his desk. Meanwhile, Stella moved around towards the couch with the idea of being in easy reach of the door once manners allowed her departure which ought to be soon, since he was now the picture of a doctor thinking, so much for peace and quiet. She said, I'm sorry to barge into your office like this. I'll come back another day. But Dr. Terry shook his head. Stay a moment, Mrs. Ryman. You were so poorly the last time I saw you when you were upstairs. He turned and Stella saw that he had a white envelope in his jacket pocket. The corner of it peeked out like a tiny room face from a kanga pouch. 
She could just make out the snipped-out, glued-on letter Y that ended his name. She reached out a hand to pluck the poison pen letter from his pocket, but just then he turned. Hurriedly, she said, I wanted to ask you whether the not... She caught herself. Er, if the woman who collapsed earlier will be all right. Her own doctor treated her, so I'm not certain, he answered. But try not to worry. One thing that never ceases to amaze me is the resilience of you people over 80. One day you look like you're on death's door, and the next day you're up and at them again. Stella looked up, struck by the truth of this statement. And she said, It's like very young children, isn't it? One minute they're white and can't breathe, and the next minute they're scrambling it into the kitchen cupboard and throwing pots out onto the floor. He laughed. For such a handsome man, it was a very human laugh. She looked down at his feet and saw that the laces on his shoes looked chewed at the ends. This was a man who needed some tender care. He said, Is that all you had to ask me, Mrs. Ryman? Out of the corner of her eye, Stella saw Reliza walk by the open office door, looking, in the white schmuck she had recently begun wearing, like a graceful lily. The doctor's glance had followed her own, and Stella said, There's a lot of beauty in this world we never see. But he had turned back to his desk and seemed not to have heard her. The fact was that even good men could be heartless. Why not tell me what's bothering you, Mrs. Ryman? He twisted around to pick up his coffee, and the letter in his pocket moved tantalizingly near. She fumbled about for a possible lie to tell him, and came up instead with the truth. And she said, I feel vague sometimes, and I forget things, and my eyesight comes and goes at difficult moments. Not that everything goes black, it's just kind of, well, vague. He nodded. Do you lose your balance as well? Yes, now and then. Should you have a look at my eyes? She asked. If he did, he'd be within range, and the letter was as good as hers. But instead of coming closer, he leaned back on the edge of his desk and took another sip of coffee. He set his paperback down beside him. Stella saw that it was a worn copy of The Return of the King. Focus, he said firmly, vagueness, by definition, is a lack of focus. When you're not interested in something, your synapses don't spark and fire. Stella was hardly listening. She said, Perhaps my balance problem has something to do with my ears. Not primarily. He pointed upwards and said, Look at the line the ceiling makes where it meets the wall. If you trace the line with your eyes slowly, carefully, without allowing your eyes to skip, your concentration will sharpen. Gamely, she tried. Within a few seconds, though, she had had enough. It jumps around, she told him. Most people won't even try, he said tiredly. So, thank you for that. Look, here's what you need to know. 
You must find a way to stay interested in things. When you focus, you're sharp. When you don't, you're vague. He moved around to the far side of the desk and sat down in his chair. With reluctance, Stella gave up on capturing his poison pen letter. What if the doctor had caught her? How would he explain herself if she had, if she was caught taking the envelope from his pocket? Unless she claimed dementia, a label she was really trying very hard to avoid. Without thinking, she asked, Also, I keep forgetting things. Dr. Terry replied, Of course, there are exercises for that, too. Mnemonics, Kim's game, concentration. Stella frowned. I'll try to remember how to learn to remember, but... Dr. Terry laughed again. He shook his head, but he wasn't it seemed, laughing at Stella. I'm an idiot, he said. If you want to remember something, then do what I do. Write it down. She picked at, uh, He picked at the papers on his desk, shook his head, and patted his pockets. He said, here, you can write on the back of this. He gave her the envelope with the poison pen letter in it, handed it to her, just like snap. She took it. She held it in both hands and stared down at the writing, then up at him. Suddenly she felt extremely guilty, although she wasn't sure why. Are you sure? She held up the envelope. It had been opened, but the letter was still inside. Don't you want this? It's addressed to you. He shook his head. It's only a bit of nonsense. You take it. Give yourself a little notebook to write things down when you can. You know like the ones journalists and detectives use on television. He smiled at her, and she looked carefully at him. Had he guessed what she was up to? Oh, sorry, he added. He dug into his desk drawer. Here, take this pen as well. Feeling quite wobbly, but not at all vague, Stella accepted the pen. She thanked him. You are a very good doctor, she said. But once again, he wasn't listening. He was looking past her to the office door. When she turned, she caught a glimpse of a white smock passing by again. He picked up his paper back and opened it. You're right, Mrs. Ryman. Beauty is everywhere. As she left, she saw that he was neck deep in Middle Earth.